You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you where I get to talk to one of my childhood heroes, and that is Peter Purvis. Yes, the man that played Steven Taylor on Doctor Who is going to sit down with me, and we're going to talk about his time on the show, acting in general, and what he did after Doctor Who. Since I started the show, I wanted to be able to interview people as well as to have the various topical discussions and things that we have on the show. And I've interviewed several people on the creative side as far as writers, producers, and things of that nature. But Peter is the first actor that I've had a chance to interview. And that was a really exciting thing for me, especially since I was probably seven years old when I first saw The Chase, which was his very first Doctor Who story. And then I saw The Time Meddler, The Ark, The Gunfighters, and that was it as far as his time on the show, because so many of his stories are missing. But I learned more about the character reading the novelizations of the ones that were missing. Later on, I was able to listen to the audio tracks for the episodes that were missing. He's had a wonderful renaissance at Big Finish as a character, where some of the best stories that they have produced in the last 10 years have been stories about Steven. So it's been a remarkable career and a remarkable run for that character, especially. And Steven was one of the ones that was there very close to the beginning. So yeah, it was a really great conversation. I'm very grateful to Peter for taking the time to sit down and talk with me for an hour about Doctor Who and about how he felt about being in Doctor Who and currently being in Doctor Who with Big Finish and all that kind of stuff. So I hope that this is just as interesting and exciting for those of you listening to this. But there's no reason for me to keep nattering on about it. We're going to pause for a moment for a promo from another fine podcast, and then we'll go straight into the interview with Peter Purvis. Everyone these days could use a little support, and your friends at the ESO Network are no different. With the ESO Network Patreon, the cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO network. And we're back. And like I talked about at the beginning of the show, I am joined here today by actor and presenter Peter Purvis. Peter, thank you for joining the 42 cast. No problem, Nathan. Good to talk to you. It's great having you on the show. I have been a fan of the character of Steven Taylor since I was eight years old and first saw The Chase. Oh, you got very good taste. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get started talking about Steven and Doctor Who, how did you get involved in acting? Uh, well, I'd, I'd always wanted to be an actor from as, as long as I can remember. Certainly from the age of about nine, I lived in a, a town in, uh, in the north of England called Blackpool, which during the summer was probably the mecca for show business in the UK. And uh, I saw every kind of show. I saw circus, I saw uh, what you would call vaudeville music hall. Uh, I saw drama. I saw general entertainment variety shows. And it just seemed that's what I I want to do that. 
And at my school, we used to do a play every year. And I, I was on the, I mean, young kid, nine years old. And I was cast in the lead of a couple of plays, in fact, three plays over three years. And uh, I thought, well, this is great. This is what I want to do. And I've never wanted to do anything else. So it was a natural progression. I went and audition in the UK. You have, you have, I don't know if you still have stock companies in, in the United States, but we have, used to have repertory companies. Mm. Every small town had its own theatre. And the repertory company was a group of actors, a director, artistic director, a stage manager, who put on a play every in a small town every week in a slightly larger town, might do it every fortnight. And in the big cities, we do it three times, three weekly or, or monthly. I was in weekly rep. And I joined that company when I was 17 to do two plays during the school holiday. I auditioned and uh, I was given a couple of parts. And when I decided that was what I was going to do permanently with my life, they offered me a regular job. So I didn't have to, I didn't have an equity card at the time. It was all very straightforward. I went back to the town where I'd lived. Uh, this wasn't Blackpool and my parents had moved by then. It was a place called Barrow in Furness in the northwest of England. And I went back there and I joined the company and I was the sort of juvenile lead, if you like, but we played everything. And in, in two years, I did something like 96 different plays. Mm. So I was a very experienced actor in that I'd done an awful lot of work. I'm not saying I was good. I was probably terrible in some of them, you know, because, I mean, you, you, you played what was available to play for you each week. And we were a limited number of people. So some of the parts were very appropriate. Some of them were not so appropriate. And some of them I would have been good in. One or two, I believe I was excellent in. The rest, I was either average or probably rotten in. I mean, you, you just don't know. But it was, a, it was a great training. And it was better than any drama school because you, you were working. You were, it's like people say, you know, we can teach you how to do things. And you'd learn a skill. But actually, being hands-on and doing it is far better than learning the skill. You learn it through a process of osmosis. It gets in through the bones. So that's how I became an actor. Oh, very interesting. So how did you get cast as Stephen Taylor on Doctor Who? Oh, well, that's that just, a, that, again, natural progression. I left the repertory company that I was working in after two years, moved to London, did a lot of traipsing around the streets, trying to get an agent. Eventually, I got an agent. Occasionally, I got a little bit of work. And then I got, I got a job in the chorus at the London Palladium uh, as a singer. I trained as a singer as a kid. And so I, I had a good voice. And it, uh, I, I was a trained tenor. And I, I was in the chorus at the Palladium for three months. Then I started looking for other work and I, occasion, I got occasional parts. And eventually I got a, a leading role in a, a play uh, which was all about the, my old hometown, Blackpool, where I, I, I played the character of a beach photographer. And uh, it was a play called The Girl in the Picture. And he was a guy who met this very pretty girl and entered her into beauty competitions and uh, had an affair with her. And it was, it was a really great part. It was a leading part. And it was the first one I'd had. And... A producer, a director, rather, at Doc, uh, on Doctor Who called Richard Martin, who directed, well, I'll, I'll tell the story in sequence. Uh, he was uh, doing a, a serial which I think was called The Web Planet, but I'm not sure, but it involved giant insects. I think it exists. Yes, it does. Um, because I went along to see him for a part in this, and it was the day after that television play where I played the lead, had been shown. And Richard said, look, there's nothing for you to play in this piece. I'm not going to give you one of these parts. When I've got a decent part for you to play, I will think of you. And I thanked him very much and took it with a pinch of salt because that's the kind of thing that directors say to actors when there isn't any work for them. In fact, he was as good as his word. And he cast me as the character Morton Dill. And if you're familiar with my work, then you'll know that Morton Dill was 
a guy from Alabama visiting New York and had a rather hysterical scene with uh, Doctor Who and his companions and the TARDIS pursued by the Daleks in another time machine on top of the Empire State Building in New York. And at the end of the recording of that particular episode, I discovered that Russell Enoch, William Russell, and Jacqueline Hill were both leaving the show in three weeks. And I just worked with them for this one week. And I had a really good time. Got on very well with them, got on very well with Maureen O'Brien. And I didn't realise, but I got on extremely well with Bill Hartnell. He liked me a lot. And he suggested to Verity Lambert that when we did the recording, they had a look at me to decide whether or not I could take over. And after the recording, they invited me over to the pub and they invited, they invited me to play Stephen Taylor. End of story. It's very straightforward, but pure luck. One of the things that I think that people don't understand when they go back and watch these episodes from the 60s is the process of making television in those days, because it's very different from how it's made now. And there were a lot of constraints that you were under. So could you describe that? Well, there weren't so much constraints. It was just the way things were done and, and, and one expected it. It was very, television was very young then. I mean, it had been going for 20 years, 30 years, but that's all. And it was still learning how to do it. And the technology was very poor. The cameras were poor. The, uh, the, the, the line system in the States at that time, you had 525 lines on screen. In the UK, we had 425 lines. And it was a pretty rotten resolution picture. But the, the technology aside, we did it as if it was the theatre. We went in on a Monday. We started rehearsing the episode. And on the Friday, we recorded it. And that was it. And it was done in as, as near as one take it could be. So everything except special effects, we kept the tape running. So everything that was, every mistake, either by cameras or by the actors, that's what you actually saw. That was what was transmitted. They couldn't afford to edit two-inch tape. And they didn't have the time to edit two-inch tape on Doctor Who. The budget was so low. So it, it, we did it as live. And it was great fun. And I was very experienced in doing live work because I'd spent, as I told you, I, I, I spent two years in repertory doing 96 different plays. That was a terrific discipline. Not many people had that. I was lucky. I had that, so I could do it. It was never, never fearful, never difficult. It was just great fun. I loved it. It was how television was made, and I was, I was up for it. Do you feel like there's advantages to doing things that way over how they do it now? In some ways, yes. Nowadays, if you're in a, uh, uh, an episode of Doctor Who, you will turn up and you will film on the day that your bits are being filmed. You don't meet members of the cast who aren't in that bit. You don't have any experience of the overall piece. You just do your bit. And that's how all television is made, that single camera shooting. I mean, ours was multi-camera. We had up to six cameras at a time working and everyone was on their toes because the whole thing was live. Now, if you make a mistake, do it again. At one time, we'd say, well, tape's cheap. And when it became Betamax after the two-inch tapes, when we were using Beta and things like that, tape was rel relatively cheap. Now, no, it, you don't have tape. It's all digital. It's easy. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. So people can goof around and they can make mistakes and they can have all their bloopers that you see in various shows which people think are wonderful. And they think that's how we work. No, I'm sorry. The best people don't work that way. The best people get it right. That's a very arrogant thing to say. <laughs> you know what I mean. But that's okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, because you, you worked under conditions where you had to get it right. So I yeah. think that's a fair thing to do. Yeah. If we, if we got it wrong, you're out of work. <laughs> right. You wouldn't get employed again. So with Stephen, when he comes into the show and throughout the period on the show, we don't really get a lot of his background. Did you ever work on your own of just thinking of who is this guy and you know, sort of inventing a backstory for him? No, I wasn't a method actor. <laughs> no, I just played it, learned the lines and delivered them uh, mm. to the best of my ability. I know more about Stephen now than I did then. Mm. Because doing, uh, you, you know Big Finish? Yes. Yeah. 
Well, I've done th something like 32, 33 different big Finnish stories. And they've taken Stephen to all sorts of places. And I now understand Stephen. And I like him a lot. He was a lovely guy, lovely character. At the time, it was just I did the part as it was played. And th there's one particular example that I can give that shows how non-method we were. When we did the gunfighters, which I, I absolutely love. I mean, mm. it, 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 was, it was great fun. And we, we played it for laughs. And we knew it was we knew it was funny, and although the, the song gets on people's nerves, the, the actual stuff was pretty good. It was a good story. It was well it was well played, I think, by all the actors. But I know that I played that as Peter Purvis rather than as Stephen Taylor. I was Peter Purvis having fun playing, pretending I was Roy Rogers or whomsoever. You know, cowboys from back in the day when they wore silly clothes. I mean, it, was, it was a dressing up part. And it was great fun. So no, I I, I didn't treat I didn't treat Stephen with the reverence he really probably deserved. But I don't think he needed to. We just had to tell the story, and the story was very plain and simple and straightforward. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get to your big finish work in a little bit. But you mentioned the gunfighters, and a friend of mine uh, asked me to ask you specifically uh, because you worked with John Alderson. Yeah. on that story and he was something of a name back then and so oh he was he was wondering if you had any memories of working with john alderson and, and what he was like oh john john was lovely i liked him a lot we we became very friendly during that i mean he was an, he was an englishman john mm -hmm. but he had the best american accent in that particular piece apart from shane rimmer who was who was canadian but mm -hmm. john had a terrific uh, western accent and of course he played the the sergeant in boots and saddles which was a, an amazing series back in the day, which uh, which I remember very well. He was a lo lovely man and a, lo a lot of fun. I think he came from Wakefield in Yorkshire. I think. I could be wrong. I, I seem to remember he was a Yorkshireman. But very, very nice man and warm, very warm-hearted and a good actor. So it was, it was great fun working with him. Yeah, I mean, that's a story where you can definitely tell that everybody's having fun doing it. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, uh, uh, Stephen, knowing more about Stephen now. What do you feel are the sort of quintessential elements of Stephen? The best explanation I can give is how he's looked at in the big Finnish stories I've done, particularly a trilogy about what happened to Stephen after the Doctor left him uh, at the end of The Savages, which was the episode I left him. Um, he, was, he was very intelligent. Uh, he was of his of his time, which was way into the future. He was a space pilot from when technology advanced to an amazing degree. He was very skilled. He was a diplomat. And I think that it, that there was an element of ruthlessness about him as well it, because he, he, he got what he wanted, eventually becoming the despot, no, not the despot, but the ruler of a, a planet which he managed to control. And he, he created the dynasty and his family also ran it. I mean, that, that comes out in the big Finnish stories. But in, in the program, he was, he was designed to be a man who, would, who was clever enough to argue with the doctor and not just be a yes man. And that worked in most episodes it didn't work in Galaxy 4, of which only one episode exists. In Galaxy 4, but that was not written for Stephen. That was written before they knew that Stephen was going to be the main character. It was written when Jacqueline Hill was expected to be playing the part that Stephen had to play, because the, the, that was the serial was embedded in the plans for the programme, so that had to happen. And so the part had to be slightly rewritten so it could be me rather than Jacqueline Hill playing it. But it didn't leave him being the heroic guy that Stephen ought to have been. In every other episode, I think, I think Stephen comes over exactly as he was meant to. Yeah. Do you see any of yourself in Stephen? Oh, it'd be very arrogant to think so. He looked like me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I, I would never have been uh, skilled enough to be uh, Stephen Taylor. Okay. Was it difficult coming into a show that was already established for two years before uh, you came in? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Nathan. I, I, I'm of, often asked that. It never occurred to me. 
I'd got the part, so I'm going to play it. And if you think of my background, which had been working in a repertory theatre with a regular group of people, and you got the script and you played the part. And that's all it was to me. It was never anything more than that. I, it was great that it was on television, and it was great that it was, it was a very well-watched television show. But uh, no, I never thought of that. Having said that, when I went in and played Morton Dill, which was not a regular character in the show, obviously, he was a one-off part, then I was quite in awe of the people in the show. Once I was part of it, I was just part of it. it it's a different mindset. You, I was an outsider, suddenly I was an insider, and I felt comfortable there. You know, a lot of people mentioned that William Hartnell was difficult to work with. Uh, did you ever find him to be that way, or did you observe that happening with others? I observed it happening with others. I never experienced it myself. I always found him extremely helpful, very generous as an actor. He was a, he was a, a witty man. He was he was amusing off screen. He was he was a very generous and friendly man. And he was quite sharp. He had a good sense of humour too. And uh, I socialised with him quite a lot. He used to take me for lunch at least once a week when we were rehearsing. Where we rehearsed in West London, there, there was a very good restaurant just across the, the green from the rehearsal room. And he would take me there at least once, maybe twice a week. And we would have a really good meal together and a good chat. And he changed my eating habits. I mean, I used to eat my, if I had steak, which I liked, I would have it very well cooked, uh, overcooked. And he taught me almost to eat it blue. And he introduced me to some wines that I didn't know. And he, he got me interested in, in eating good food. It was a very nice social experience. And uh, I learned a lot from Bill about that. I learned a fair bit about acting for him as well. You know, he had a very quirky way of performing. He worked in close-up, and his hands would often be very close to his face. You could see him gesturing and doing things like that. I did a rather big gesture, I can't remember what it was, in a very early episode. And he took me to one side, he said, no, he said, Peter, this is television. And television's very small. And that you have to, if you're going to do a gesture, there's no point if people can't see it. That's why he moved his hands near his face. Ah, yes, so I mean, always the, the hands were there near the face. He thought about things. And he, if he was doing a gesture, he made certain it was going to be seen because he said television was small. Interesting point. And it's, it's probably true. Yeah. Were you aware of the difficulties that he was having with John Wiles when he became the producer? Well, not him personally, no. But we all had difficulty with John Wiles. I, I didn't like the man at all. And mainly because of, uh, of this awful script which came in that was Galaxy 4, where my character didn't appear. I mean, he did. And I had a very big part in the, in the, in the story. But it wasn't Stephen. And having just done the Time Meddler, which was pure Stephen and had been written as a vehicle to get Stephen into the show, to come across this script which had nothing to do with Stephen's character was very annoying. And he got this new producer, John Wiles, who I didn't take to at all, uh, and I had a real problem with him. I didn't realise that everyone was having a problem with him. I mean, Maureen O'Brien had a problem with him because she came back. We, after Galaxy 4, we went and took a summer break, and we had five weeks off or six weeks off and then came back and received the new script, which was The Myth Makers, in which Maureen discovered that she was written out in episode four, and she had no idea. She didn't know until she, we got the scripts. And that was, to my mind, John Wiles, producer, mucking about. There, there were other reasons which we didn't understand and didn't know, because we didn't have any real dealings with him as the producer. He was just there overseeing the show. We, we were working with the director, who was organizing the script that we'd got that we had to play. And that was our contact with the hierarchy. Uh, we only saw the producer, we only saw John Wiles on the Thursday afternoon before the recording on the Friday, and then after the recording on the Friday. Apart from that, we never saw the man. 
So were you surprised after you had left the show to hear so soon afterwards that Hartnell was leaving? Yes. I mean, Bill was Bill was furious when when I was leaving. He was he was very upset that Maureen left. When it was threatened that I, he heard that when he heard the same time as I did that I was going to be leaving. He said, "Well, I'm not having that." He said, I'll, "I'm going to leave as well." I don't think he realised the writing was on the wall for him, but it was. And of course, you know, think think about poor Jackie Lane playing Dodo. Mm. You know, she'd only been in the show for about six weeks. And then I left. And two episodes later, or two serials later, she's gone. And again, without even an exit. She didn't even have a proper departure from the show. She just left. It, uh, it was a very miserable time, actually, um, behind the scenes. And a real time of flux. It didn't actually impinge on us doing our performances. I was very upset that I, I was leaving. It didn't stop me playing uh, Stephen right to the end uh, as well as I could. That was, you know, it was, uh, it was an acting job that I was going to fulfil. Unfortunately, the actors were dispensable, and always are. It depends on what producers want, and you either keep someone in the show or you don't. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy for me looking at this and seeing that in the span of one year, there were three producers on the show. (laughs) And so it was definitely a time of change. But did you feel like there was a difference as far as the day-to-day production when you go from Verity Lambert and Dennis Spooner working together to John Wiles and Donald Tosh? There was a difference because we didn't have the same rapport with John Wiles that I had with uh, Verity mm-hmm. for a very short time. Didn't really know Innes Lloyd when he joined, when he came along. But it was, it was a very insecure time. When Maureen left, when Maureen O'Brien left, the next serial after the Myth Makers was the Dalek Master Plan. And because Maureen had just gone literally out of the blue, and suddenly there was a new character in the first four episodes called, I can't remember the name of the character, but it was, it was Brett that uh, Nick Courtney played. Mm-hmm. Um, Brett, Ly- Brett Lyon. I can't remember the name of the character. Even now. But anyway, uh, he came in and I was very nervous that he'd been brought in to replace me. Mm. That's how it felt. And then, of course, in episode four, the new girl, we lost her out through the airlock straight away. Off, off, off went... Uh, it, it was it was a very unsettling time, so we were never confident that we'd be in the next serial. You know, it was it was that sort of time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as you mentioned, there were a lot of different co-stars that you had during this time period too. You had Maureen O'Brien, you had Adrian Hill, you had Gene Marsh, and then Jackie Lane. You you missed Annette Robertson out there from uh, in the. Uh, Massacre. Uh, the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. That's, that's fair, yeah. No, that's fair. I mean, she's not considered a companion usually when people talk about but that's that's fair because in that serial, she was your co-star. I thought she was going to be kept on permanently, so it was quite a surprise when she wasn't. Did you find that Stephen's role fluctuated as he worked with these different people, or did you feel like you were you were pretty much interacting the same and it was just this is the, the female companion role, it's just a bunch of different people that I'm working with? Absolutely. It was exactly, exactly like that. There was no, we didn't think that, I never thought of the, the, them as uh, them being the companions. I mean, that's something which has developed very much later with, with, with hindsight. It was, you were in the serial playing a character. And uh, no, I mean, the fact that the, the, the girls kept on training was unsettling, but fine that's unfortunately i mean that that was their hard luck or, or whatever that they lasted a short or a long time maureen i think was very badly dealt with and so too was dodo jean marsh we knew she wasn't going to stay because she could she only had a contract for eight weeks and she was off doing something else afterwards mm-hmm. and that i thought was the new girl but that was never nothing really was made of that and prior to that adrian had been introduced as the new girl and then they decided, no, we can't actually have a girl from uh, ancient times being the doctor's companion. She, she wouldn't fit. Did you keep in touch with any of them after Doctor Who? Yeah. And, of course, still very, very uh, 
good friends with uh, Maureen O'Brien when we do the, the big finish work. And it was great seeing Jeannie Marsh again when, when I worked with her on there. Sadly, she's not been very well. And uh, uh, I think probably I've worked with her for the last time on, on, uh, on Big Finish. Um, she, she finds it very difficult to deliver the lines now, which, which is such a shame. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, yeah, we, we, we still were in contact. Unfortunately, not with uh, Jackie Lane. Yeah, Jackie is one of those people who is kind of a mysterious figure because she's wanted nothing to do with Doctor Who. Well, she was treated so badly, I'm not surprised, really. I think, I think she had reason not to want to be involved and not to have fond feelings for the show. Um, I mean, I, I, I was pretty annoyed that, that, that my contract was, was terminated uh, when it was. I didn't, I didn't want to leave the show. There was no reason to. Uh, it was just Ennis Lloyd decided everything was going to change. And uh, there was a new uh, system that he said uh, was going to be the case that uh, the Doctor's companions, in fact, that was the first time I heard the, the phrase, the Doctor's companions would now only stay with the Doctor for one year. And uh, that didn't last long. Fraser came in eventually, and I mean, he, he lasted for about 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to be fair, if you look at it, you've been lasting for, uh, you know, 50 years now as Stephen, so, you know. Yeah, oh, yes, oh, yes. No, that we, we, we all have uh, we've all had longevity in that respect. Mm -hmm. So what was your favorite story on television? Uh, the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve by a long, long way. That was a really good vehicle for me. I don't know if you've heard the audios. I have. It's a good piece. It's a really good piece, and it's a terrific part for Stephen. So it was a terrific part for me, and I thoroughly enjoyed playing it. And, of course, the costumes were fantastic. Uh, it's a great pity it wasn't in colour. It was the most beautiful, beautifully decked out production. The, the sets were fantastic. The director was marvellous. Lovely, lovely lady called Paddy Russell, and she, she did a brilliant job with it. And the actors in there were terrific. Andre Morel, Leonard Sachs, Eric Thompson. Christopher Trunchell. It was a terrific, terrific cast. And that Robertson too. I mean, there, there were no weak links in it. So it was wonderful to play with such good actors and at the same time have such a good part to play myself. So yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, Stephen actually got to be the leading man in that story. The, the, I discovered later, talking to people like Donald Tosh, mm. who was the story editor, that there had been a consideration as to whether Stephen could actually carry the show. I, I wasn't party to this. I had no knowledge of that at the time at all. And the, so really it was a test in some way to see if the show would still work without the Doctor being so prominent. I mean, actually, the, the Doctor did have quite a prominent role in there, although he wasn't seen so much, but it was a very important role. And the two characters he played, the Abbot and himself, were desperately important to the actual story, but it was a it was a uh, an experiment. As later was the celestial toy maker in the same way. Can we get rid of Bill? And uh, of course they decided they could. And the the eventual way, of course, was to regenerate him, which was a very clever idea, and that worked wonderfully well. If it hadn't. We wouldn't be talking now. Right. Doctor Who would have been consigned to the uh, to the past and uh, distant memory. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, one of the things that uh, William Hartnell said in an interview once is, "Oh, he sees Doctor Who going for five years." Well, we see that that's uh, that was an underestimate by quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, uh, many many hundred percent wrong. Right. But yes, I mean, he he, I think would have liked to have done it for five years. In mm. fact, he did it for four, I think. Oh, three and a half. Three and a half. Yeah, mm. there you go. So you know more than I do, Nathan. <laughs> you don't need to ask these questions. You can tell me the answers. For some things, I, I know the answers from how some people say answers, but sometimes people remember things differently, too. <laughs> <laughs> so the massacre, um, you know, you had mentioned that one. That The really sad thing about that one is that so little of it visually, or for, for some stories that are missing, we have the telesnaps. And so you yes. can see how the story looked even though we don't have the video, but uh, the massacre, there's only uh, like a few photos 
in yes. existence of that one. They're so very it's, poor, really. Yes, yeah. very poor coverage. The, the, the telly snaps, I didn't even know about until someone said, oh, the myth makers exist. It's, it's been put together with all the, all the telly snaps. And I saw them. I mean, you keep on getting the same picture mm-hmm. coming up over and over and over again because there aren't a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I, I hate those reconstructions. I don't like mm-hmm. them at all. They are done with the original audio. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's okay. But no, I haven't, I haven't enjoyed that. For me, it's my only way of being able to see what the story might have looked like. And so, I mean, from that standpoint, I find them... Well, the the costumes were terrific. Certainly something like the Myth Makers. Uh, You you get some idea of how good they were. Uh, Francis DeWolf, who played uh, Agamemnon, uh, his costume there, (laughs) it's actually... I don't know if you've seen the film called Carry On Cleo. I haven't. There's a series of, of very old bad joke movies in the UK, the Carry On series. One of them was Carry On Cleo, which takes place in uh, ancient Egypt and ancient Rome. And Francis DeWolf plays a, a ship's captain in that, very fierce, in this exotic costume. Same one that he wore in Doctor Who later. They borrowed the costume. It's exactly the same one. So Agamemnon really is only a ship's captain. In <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Well, if you think about it, the Greeks, they were, uh, they were sailors. So I guess oh, that does kind of fit. And yeah. the costume fit. It, it looked great. It did look tremendously good. <laughs> so after Doctor Who, you made a transition to being a presenter. You were very well known for being on Blue Peter. And in fact, they've included some scenes or various uh, excerpts from Blue Peter in a lot of the DVD releases uh, when Blue Peter would cover a particular Doctor Who story or whatever. They that's would... Right. Yeah, so so I've been able to see some of that uh, with you on Blue Peter. So how did you make that transition from Doctor Who to Blue Peter? Well, I, I, I believe I, I, after I left Doctor Who, I really struggled as an actor for a while. Hmm. Unlike today, if you appear in the television series for five minutes, uh, you, you have instant fame thrown upon you. It wasn't the case back in the day. And uh, I really struggled to get work. I, maybe I wasn't very good, I don't know. But anyway, I, I didn't get the acting work. Mm. And eventually, I was invited to go along and see the producers of Blue Peter because they were looking for someone new to join the presentation team of that. And I went and auditioned for it, and I got the part. And I took it in my mind for six months as a stopgap. It was going to be you know, until the next decent acting job came along. But no, I stayed with it for 10 and a half years because it was such a terrific job. Yeah, and so since then, you've been doing presenting a lot. But then after that, Stephen really has gone through a renaissance with Big Finish. Oh, so how did the Big Finish work start? Well, it's, it's quite funny, actually. I, 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 for a long time, I couldn't be bothered to get involved with Doctor Who things. So I was invited to conventions, one or two, and I, I turned them down. So I, that was then. And it was a long time ago. So Mark Ayres came along and, and produced the audio collection of all the missing episodes and the episodes that existed. And it was written that, uh, so that there was a commentary, in essence, which told the story, gave the visuals that weren't there, because it's just audio. And I, I did those. And that renewed my interest in Doctor Who. And so I went to a convention. I went to one in Manchester called Monopticon. And then I went to one in the States. I went to one in Chicago. And there were a group of people there, and I'd never seen them before. I said, who are those guys? I said, well, the Big Finish. What's Big Finish? Well, they do original Doctor Who stories, and uh, they use the original people. I thought, well, no, bloody ask me. So that, that was a, 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 about three years later, I was asked if I would go in and do one story. And it was, called, it was the one called Mother Russia, which was the first one I did. And I did it. It was okay. I, it's a great story. I don't think I did it very well. I, I could have done it better. I could have given it more thought. I, I just went in and, and delivered it. And afterwards, I thought, hmm, I could have made more of that. I could, have, I could have done it better. Anyway, I didn't. But that was the first. And then... The one thing that they noted from that was that in the writing, it says, you know, I'd give a line, oh, don't do that, my boy, do so-and-so, so-and-so, said the doctor. 
and they realized that my impression of Bill Hartnell wasn't that bad and that they don't need lines like said the doctor or the doctor said or whatever. Those all went in everything that came along subsequently. The lines were just the doctor's lines, which I interpreted as near as I could to how I remember Bill. What I get right about Bill is his rhythm, his speech rhythms and his idiosyncrasies. Put it, I, I add a, all the little, <laughs> all those little bits are the bits that I add to what's in the script. And I'm left to it and they seem to like it. And so that's the way it's been. It's been a marvellous regeneration of the character for me. I've loved doing it because it's proper acting. Mm. You're not on screen, but you've really got to perform the piece. And I, on occasion, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing Bill, I'm playing old Stephen as he was. My voice hasn't changed all that much. It's a little bit deeper, I think, now than it was. But it's more or less the same voice that I had as Stephen. It's not really changed. And I'll play Stephen older, and I'll also be the narrator. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to do. And sometimes you're changing sentence after sentence. You're changing voice. And I absolutely love that. So I, I find it challenging, and I love doing it. I'm proud of doing that. I, I enjoy it. And I don't leave the editors a great deal to do in between. They don't have much to take out in terms of, oh, take that gap out and so on, which I know is not all that complex now in audio to do. But at one time, just to give you an example, when I used to do commentaries for films that I did on Blue Peter, we used to do them in the morning of the show. And you did it from beginning to end absolutely accurately. You had to. I mean, you were cued, obviously, in various things, and the script was written, that's fine. But it was a delivery that just had to... Because if you got it wrong, you had to go back to the start and do it again. You couldn't pick it up because the editing facility just wasn't there. Now, you know how simple it is uh, to, all right, we'll take that out and do it at this time. You can do it, you can see the, the things on screen. It was never like that. It was continuous recording, and it was not digital. It was, what do they call it? I can't remember what they call it. But anyway, it was in real time. So you had to do things from the start. So Big Finish, whilst they do edit a huge lot, the, I mean, the, 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 the editor that creates the sound impression of the whole thing, because the, 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 there is some wonderful sound construction there. So that's all done in the post-production. Uh, but I, I don't think I gives them an awful lot to do. I try to get that right. It's, it's a bit of me old training. I'll get it right. Thanks very much. Yeah, I have said before in reviews of some of your stories that I could listen to you read the phone book oh, because you just make things hey, sound you interesting. You're welcome. Uh, oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you like the work because it is, it is such a joy to do. Mm -hmm. They're talking at the moment, because we're all in this lockdown situation, they're talking at the moment of me doing some recordings at home and they're going to send me some stuff. I think the first one is a novel or a novelette. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see how that goes. But also, I think we're thinking of, that we might be able to do some stories by recording from home because mm -hmm. I can record on my Mac. So it's not, uh, the, the quality is not bad at all or can be pretty good. So with a bit of luck, that's something that will happen whilst we're still caught in this lockdown situation. Yeah, well, that's very good because that's one of the th challenges, of course, with everything that's going on is people can't get together. Yeah. It's dangerous. So uh, it's good yeah. to hear that the Big Finish has found a way to uh, well, continue. They think they have, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, they think they have. Obviously, you have to test it. But you mentioned your, uh, your doctor performance, and that is one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because it is interesting because both you and Bill Russell, you both do a first doctor in your audios, but they're different but they both seem to capture <laughs> William Hartnell in, in, in a way that seems very authentic at the same time. And I don't know if you've ever heard any of his, uh, any of his work. To be honest, I haven't heard his doctor. I'm told it's very good. I don't want to because I don't want to try and I don't want to change what I do because I know I've got something that works when I'm doing it. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect. What I'm saying is it works for me. I can feel... Sometimes, and it has happened on a few occasions when we've been recording, I've said, can I do that again? I can't hear him. Hmm. And I have to hear Bill when I'm doing the lines. Otherwise, it doesn't work for me. And sometimes, particularly if you've got a long bit to do, you go through it and you say, ah, I've lost him. And when that happens, I will ask to do it again. 
I know, as I say, I've heard that Bill does a very good, I don't know whether it's a similar kind of impression, but I think we probably both have his rhythms in mind, the way that he delivers the things and the way he, uh, he used to say, uh, the way he used to say things, the way he used to style things and phrase them. And I think, well, I, I, I think I've got it. And I dare say uh, Ross would have it as well. Lovely guy, Ross, by the way. Very nice guy. The thing that I hear from both of you is the respect for him that comes through in your performance of trying to trying to to get back to someone that you knew and respected very well and try very hard to perform it as close to what he could do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I liked him immensely as an actor, mm. and I liked him very much as a person. Uh, he had you had his faults, but of course, don't we all? Most of his were to do with his generation, because he was a good thirty years older than me. Mm -hmm. So yes, he was he was from a different era, and his the mores of that era were very different from those of mine, and certainly from those of today. So it, it uh, yes, he had he had faults which one can pick on, but that doesn't take away any of the respect I have for him as an actor. And I, uh, or, or as a person, actually. I liked him a lot. Do you have anything that you do to sort of get yourself in the position where you can capture that performance, or is it all from memory of, of how you remember him being? It's all from memory. I mean, I've done the work because I've read the script before. Mm -hmm. I will read it, and if I have a problem with bits of it, I'll think about those. But for mostly, it's just being familiar with the piece. As, as I say, I like to switch the voices. I like to go from Stephen to the doctor. If the, the doctor interrupts Stephen at some point, then I interrupt myself and I switch voice almost in, in mid-words. I love that. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy doing it. It's quite a challenge, but I like doing it. And it seems to work because I, I rarely get said, oh, can we do that again? That didn't work. In any case, the director, it was mostly, it's been Lisa Bauman mostly. She was absolutely wonderful. She and the sound editor can do virtually anything with it. But they, you know, they always say, well, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a pause, but I try not to make one. Certainly if it's an interruption, I like to try and do it because that's, that's my acting coming in and proving I can do it. <laughs> you mentioned how much you like working for Big Finish. Is there, are there any advantages you feel to doing audio where you feel like audio is a, is a particularly good medium to work with? Well, you're not limited by what, what can physically happen. So, I mean, yes, it's, it's very good. On audio, provided you've got, you, you have a, a good sound engineer and you've got someone who's doing a really good sound design on the whole piece, you're relying on them. I mean, I, I must say, when I listen to some of the productions that we've done, I'm amazed at how well the sound design has found and developed what the script said because the script describes a scene a visual scene it doesn't describe it in sound it describes a visual scene the sound somehow gets you to that place and that's very clever so i i find i find it yes challenging but very satisfying yeah, Big Finish, I think, has done a phenomenal job with the sound. I always say that, that, well, and of course, that's, that is their medium, and they've been doing it for over 20 years, so one would hope that they would know how to do it. But yeah, um, yeah being able to create sort of a, an audio world where it feels like it, it's got depth and, you know, the three dimensions of a physical space, but it's all in sound. That's right, that's right. And, and the, there is a real dimension in sound. And they, they create it. Uh, one of the, the more recent ones we did, the wreck of the, I can't remember, the wreck of the something 201. I think yeah, UK 201. Mm -hmm. That's it. The sound, the, the sound design on that whole production is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It takes you everywhere. Mm -hmm. Your imagination can run wild with it. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. So uh, we mentioned your co-stars on TV, but Big Finish added a new companion with Oliver Harper, uh, <laughs> yes. played by Tom Allen. And so how did you find that working with him and having a, a new person to, to interact with? It was, it was very good indeed. A, a lot of fun working with him. Tom hadn't really hit the height uh, uh, that he has now. I mean, he is so 
he's he's so highly regarded now. He's a very good comedian, but we didn't have any of that in the stories. I mean, it was he was playing it straight as an actor, and he was terrific. He was very good to work with, very entertaining to work with, but very professional. I mean, we just got on and did it. I didn't see the Tom Allen that I now know from various shows on television, various comedy things, and all of a I never saw that in him when we were working on it. It never came, it wasn't part of the production, it wasn't part of what he had to do, so he didn't do that. And he's a very good actor. It was, it was a real pleasure. I'd love to work with him again. He's, he's a very nice guy, I like him a lot. You've been able to play in a very wide range of stories as Stephen. Um, you know, we, we mentioned like the gunfighters, myth makers, much more comedic. You've played very dramatic roles, such as in The Massacre. Do you feel that there's any kind of story that particularly suits Stephen? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, I think, I mean, The Massacre, I think, was, was, was a stunning one for him. Mm. But I mean, lots of the others were good. I mean, the Celestial Toymaker, great fun. And, um, you know, he, had, he, he was just, he, he was a guy play, playing games, which unfortunately were lethal games, because if you got it wrong, you died. I and mean, that's uh, not a great thing to, to have. But I mean, so, uh, things like, you, you know, the, the show called The Crystal Maze? Uh, no, I don't know that one. Crystal Maze, is, is, it, was, it was a British television program. I didn't know whether it had sold, whether it had come to the States or not. But it, was, it involved people being challenged in games like that. It wouldn't have happened if it. I mean, it, it literally borrowed from Doctor Who. The, the, the games were like those. They got more complex, and, and and as technology advanced, it became more dangerous. But it was the same idea, and uh, I mean that, that was good stuff. I enjoyed that. And Dodo and Stephen had a really good time. The characters we played against were nonsensical. You got a Billy Bunter character. We got I can't. He wasn't called Billy Bunter. He wasn't allowed to be. There was a copyright reasons. But you got the King and Queen of Hearts, and you got the Cook, and you got all all these things and ballet dancers and machines and the Celestial Toymaker himself, plus the Trilogic game, which was played with this wonderful disembodied hand of Bill Hartnell, so he could have a holiday. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, Stephen was in his element in that. I won't say it was designed perfectly for him, but it, he was absolutely in his element in that. Oh, one of the fun things about that one is Stephen becoming increasingly frustrated with the absurdity of the situation. Absolutely, absolutely. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any ideas that you have that you would like to see uh, done in a, a future story with Stephen? I've always wanted the Doctor to return to that planet and to that time and see what happened to Stephen. Well, I think Simon Garrier got it right with Big Finish. We know what happened to him. But there's still a story there. And uh, one of the one of the three, I'd love to see that uh, televised. I'd love it to be done. The one where he's uh, finally in his own private cell, thinking back over what happened. His daughter is now the emperor of the of the planet and ruling it. It's um, yeah, I'd I'd like that to be on television. I think I could play that. <laughs> you you might have just answered this question, but what is your favorite story that you've done for Big Finish? Oh dear, it, that's a really hard one to do because I've enjoyed them all. I liked the trilogy with Tom. It was a good series. It was a trilogy of three. The trilogy of Stephen on the planet when he was with the Savages, when he left the Savages, that was a, I, I was thrilled with that. And Simon wrote, I, I said to Simon Gurrier that that was a storyline I'd love to see explored. And he said, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And he did it. And I think it's a wonderful story. But there are so many. My shelf is full of them behind me here. And uh, I can't remember the titles of all of them, but they, they, there are some wonderful ones, some great ones that were the Sontarans. Oh, and one I particularly loved, which was The Return of the Rocket Man. Yes. Which is just, I mean, the, that is such a good story. And, and when I read it, First, when, before we did the recording, I didn't see the end coming. I couldn't work out where it was going. Oh, that's a good story. So th th there's been a lot of talent uh, has come my way in the form of very, very good writers. And they like my character. They like the character of Stephen. They like writing for him. I'm very flattered by that.
Yeah, you actually mentioned my personal favorite, which is Return of the Rocket Men. So really? I'm glad that oh. you enjoyed it as well. Yes. Oh, no, I loved it. Loved it. Oh, I actually spoke with Tim Trelore, uh last week, and uh, who worked opposite you on that one. And, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. I was talking to him mostly about how he's playing the third Doctor now, but uh, we did mention Return of the Rocket Men and talk about that for a minute. <laughs> he's, he's playing uh, John, is he? Yes, yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're recasting a lot of the, the a lot of the people now. Big finish, and of course, you worked with Ajaz Awad in um, Daughter of the Gods. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Yes, she was very, very good indeed. That's uh, that's that. Not you see, picking up favourites, it's un, it's unfair, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, that's such a clever story. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't have two doctors together. I mean, I know they've done it on television. It's never mm -hmm. worked for me. But this was a perfect reason why they might have come into contact, and that I, I, that I accept that. Mm -hmm. I find the television stories less impressive than most of the stuff we've done on Big Finish. I think there's some great stories there. I think, uh, and to my mind, better than much of what's gone on television. Television's got consumed by the ability of the technology to do wonderful things. And so they often look wonderful, but the substance isn't there, I don't think. Uh, you're not going to hear an argument from me on that one. I, I feel like Big Finish is more authentically Doctor Who than uh, a lot of what's I on television. Well. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> I, I really do believe that myself. You're welcome. Would you like to ever come back to Morton Dill? Oh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> uh, as a younger man, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Morton Dill was preposterous, <laughs> absolutely outrageous. And again, played purely for laughs. And I don't know whether the accent was any good or not. I don't care. Mm. I just found I latched on to something that would work for that character being a hillbilly in New York and being amazed by what's going on. He thinks that someone's making a television film or a, or a movie. Great, mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, so, yeah. But no, I couldn't go back to Morton <laughs> now. No, no. So are there any projects that you're working on currently or were working on just before the lockdown that you want to mention? Well, nothing, nothing, to, do, nothing to do with Doctor Who, I have to say. Um, no, I'm, uh, I'm brand ambassador for a, a product which is a veterinary joint supplement for mainly for dogs and cats. So they also do a humor one as well. And uh, that came up just before the lockdown started. And I, I went on their behalf to Crufts Dog Show, which is the biggest dog show in the world. And I've been doing that for 41 years on television. And I was there this year on, on their behalf as their brand ambassador, meeting and greeting people. And then we got the lockdown and so everything's come to a a sad halt at the moment. I'm still doing stuff. We're trying to raise money for pet rescue centers, which have lost all their funding because of lockdown. Uh, so I tweet stuff fairly regular. I've tweeted a couple of things today, which has had quite nice response. Uh, just playing with my dogs in the garden. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky. We're in lockdown, but luckily I've got a bit of space where I live. And uh, I would hate to be in the city. Mm -hmm. Just wouldn't suit my temperament at all at the moment. And it's a glorious day today here, so it's just maybe the world's all right. I don't know. Well, that's good to hear, at least, that you're able to keep doing the things that you like to do while you're in lockdown, because, yeah, a lot of people aren't in that situation. No, so. no. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Thank you for playing Stephen Taylor for all these years <laughs> and giving us so much entertainment. And, uh, and thank you for coming on the 42 cast. Uh, it's really been my pleasure, and uh, I hope you're satisfied with the chat. <laughs> yeah, oh yes. <laughs> and that's it for our interview with Peter Purvis. I'd like to thank Peter again for giving his time to talk about his career with us. It was a lot of fun talking with you, Peter, and I appreciate it. And if you ever want to come back on the 42 cast, I'm ready to have you. There are definitely more questions that I'd ask you if I'd had the time. But now I'd like to know what all of you listening thought. Did you enjoy the interview? Would you like me to interview more people in the future? Who would you like me to interview? You can let us know in a variety of ways. One way is to email us at everything at 42cast.com. Another way is to tweet to us at at 42cast. Another way is to go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can also leave us messages on our website at 42cast.com. And finally, you can leave us reviews on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. 
It's probably apparent to everyone now that I am a big Doctor Who fan. And on that note, I have a new podcast that I started with my friend Juliet called Time Streams. We're going through every episode of Doctor Who and discussing them from the beginning. And we're going to keep going until we've caught up to modern times. We might throw some big finish stuff in there from time to time. Uh, if not, and the sh- if the show lasts that long, we'll definitely talk about big finish and other expanded universe media after we catch up to the uh, TV show and, you know, 10 years time or whatever it will take um but it's been a lot of fun so far uh juliet has never seen any of the classic doctor who stories and of course that is my primary focus is classic doctor who so it gives a nice shift in perspectives between the two of us we get to talk about things and you know how we view them and everything and it's been a really great time so definitely check that out if you like doctor who and if you're listening to this episode you probably like doctor who But anyway, as far as I know, Chicago TARDIS is still technically still happening. They haven't given an official word. I don't know that it's likely that it's actually going to happen, but I'm still planning on attending that con. Everything else is canceled, of course, so we'll see about Chicago TARDIS, but I would not hold my breath if I were you that I'd be there. But if they do hold it, I will be there. In the show notes for this one, I am going to include my picks for good Big Finish stories that feature Steven. Feel free to check those out, look at them. If you haven't listened to any of his stories or you haven't listened to a lot of them, you know, just take a look and see if any of them strike your interest and check them out because I'd highly recommend it. Like I said, I I wasn't lying when I said that the character of Steven has had such a renaissance at Big Finish, so many really good stories and a lot of really dramatic parts for him to work on that I think that you will find listening to those stories to be really good, really enjoyable. All right, but with all that being said, it's time to wrap things out. So join us back next week when Mike Coulter will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2020. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.